Welcome to There is a Method to the Madness. My name is Rob Maxwell. I'm an exercise physiologist and personal trainer. I'm the owner of Maxwell's Fitness Programs, and I've been in business since 1994. Today, I'm going to talk about return to play or how to come back for an, from an injury and how not get it injured in the first place. Before I get into that, let me thank our very first sponsors, Jonathan and Lynn Gilden of the Gilden Group at Realty Pros. They handle both residential and commercial properties. And if you're keeping score at home, Realty Pros is actually number one in Volusia County, which means they're doing a lot of things right. They can be reached at thegildengroup.com. All right, so return to play or how to come back from an injury. When I taught sports medicine at the college level, I went over the guidelines of how to return to play for athletes, for elite athletes and non-elite athletes. And I always like to use the model for elite athletes because, well, where there's elite athletes, there's elite money. And where there's elite money, there's people who really have their job on the line and have to make sure that they're doing it properly. So with that much investment, you know that they're doing things correctly. I could tell you some stories about some of these poor guys that, uh, you know, they're basically told, don't screw this up. This athlete's worth blankety blank. And if you mess it up, that's your, you know what? So there's a lot of pressure on the line. So these guys really have to know what they're doing when it comes to getting athletes back on the playing field again at the elite level. And this includes the physicians too, who are under extreme pressure to make sure that they get it right. So it's the whole sports medicine team from the physicians, to the sports psychologists, to the strength and conditioning coaches, to the athletic trainers, to the massage therapists, to chiropractors, to the acupuncturists. So the whole crew is responsible for making sure that this person, oh, and the physical therapist to make sure that they get back out on the field and there is a ton of pressure involved. So I like to use that model because we know that that's where there has been the most thought and emphasis, right? I mean, it's just a reality. So where there's the most money, there's going to be the most talent most of the time. I'm not saying that's right, but that's just the way it is. And so from there, we want to trickle it down, so to say, into how to get ourselves back. But if we follow the model of how we do it with what the world thinks is the best, then we're probably using a method to the madness versus just jumping out onto the field or court or wherever you are going. So let's talk about it. The first thing we need to do once we recognize that we have an injury is the classic rice. Rest, ice, compress, and elevate. So the first goal of rehabilitation is to heal. The first goal is to literally let everything calm down. Anything we're doing to get in the way of that is simply prolonging our healing. So once we know that we're injured, something that goes beyond normal soreness because it's not really going away or it's causing a 
change in our gait patterns, a way we throw, whatever. So I can give an example from just last night. I was watching the Tampa Bay Rays play baseball. That's the team I really like to follow. And uh, Shane McClanahan was pitching, and he is the elite pitcher, probably the best, if not one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. And uh, his velocity was down in the early parts of the game. And, uh, you know, obviously the naked eye can't tell that, but the radar was showing that it wasn't where it normally was. He really wasn't showing any dip in his mechanics from what I could tell. But the athletic trainer and manager walk out to the mound and have a discussion with him because they noticed something. And he wasn't very happy, but they asked him to leave the game. So they noticed something early. And that takes an elite eye and metrics to figure out because, again, they had the radar gun. They knew that he was missing his locations, missing his velocities. So they knew, even though we couldn't really see it. And they did the wise thing. They said, you know, even though he was clearly cussing under his uh, mitt as he talks into his mitt, uh, I'm assuming he was using some four-letter words because he did not look happy. But and, And that's great. That's a competitor. That's what you want. You don't want him to you know, just leave the game like, oh, I don't care. So you want that. But then the professionals have to do their job to recognize it. And I salute the Rays for noticing it early because maybe it's just a little bit of undue soreness. You know, maybe he was a little sore from his last outing or something from uh, a couple days ago. Who knows? But they're recognizing it early. So it doesn't become an injury. So that's really important to recognize things very early and be able to differentiate what is an injury and what is normal soreness. And a lot of that is just experience and knowing our bodies and uh, that kind of thing. And also asking for some guidance on that. So once we notice it is more than soreness, we want to, again, rest. So we use the acronym REST, ICE, Compress, Elevate. So RICE, when it comes to something like a soft tissue injury, which is going to be muscular or tendon related. So that's going to be more soft tissue, although tendon is kind of in between the muscle and the bone as far as density goes. For the most part, we still call it soft tissue, although muscle is mostly soft tissue. In the case of muscle strains, that's usually a two-week injury from the onset of it to where you can get back to your activity. So it's not very long. Tendons is typically a month. And then the the more severe injuries such as ligaments are going to take a lot longer. And it just depends on the severity. And I could do a whole podcast on that. Now, if it is a ligament injury of sorts, that had, that is a lot more serious and time consuming. But instead of RICE, we use the acronym PRICE. We put the P in the beginning of it, and that stands for PROTECT. So it's PROTECT, REST, ICE, COMPRESS, ELEVATE. So in other words, you may need crutches, or you may need some sort of a a sleeve, something to hold the injury in place because you want to protect it from moving. That's what the P means, okay? So the first stage is get out of pain and get rid of inflammation. And there's a lot of different things people can do during that time, active recovery type stuff, modalities such as e-stim and ultrasound and those good things. That would be our goal though. So that is the first step to return to play 
and it's different for everybody, but we do have some guidelines. The next thing we want to work on with an injury is range of motion. So now once it's pain-free, say, oh, that's good. You know, it's not hurting anymore. I'm not limping. I'm not feeling any pain, discomfort. I mean, you're going to feel a little soreness. So that's where you have to be kind of smart. And the last part of this, I'm going to talk about the psychological component, which is huge. But you do have to kind of have a good idea of if it's really out of pain um, or not. And, you know, normally people with guidance can figure that out. But anyway, the next step is range of motion. You want to start doing some range of motion. Now, that's not always stretching. I worked with uh, my sponsor, actually, our first sponsor, Jonathan Gilden, with the knee injury. And, you know, he was always told, you got to stretch it, you got to stretch it. And it's like, well, it depends on the injury. So, you know, it depends. If you are dealing with some tendon type injuries, like in the back of your knee, then stretching is not a good idea because you are actually pulling on those tendons and not allowing them to heal. So it depends. Stretching can be a part of range of motion, but it's not always a part of range of motion. Range of motion is range of motion. What is the normal range of motion for a joint? And can you get through that pain-free? Can you actively get through that range of motion pain-free? For example, let's say somebody hurt their knee and we would want to make sure that they can do full range in in, uh, squats. And I hesitated because full range, I don't want you to think is ass to grass as the CrossFitters call it because that's not really the case. The safest range of motion for the degree for the knees is 90 degrees or parallel. That's where you get the greatest bang for your buck as far as strength goes. And, you know, that's basically the height of a chair, right? So there's really no reason to go deeper than that. So full range would be 90 degrees. But we would want to make sure that they have that range of motion back if they had it before because there's other variables. But that doesn't mean that we need to make sure that they can get their heel to their butt in a in a quad stretch, right? So there's a difference between range of motion and flexibility. What one is more functional and that's range of motion. I'm not saying flexibility is bad. It's not, but we can't confuse it. So our next step is full range of motion, pain-free full range of motion of the joint, which shouldn't take very long. And a good physical therapist, massage therapist, chiropractor, whatever, can actively work you through a full range of motion. And that's their job is to help you do that. There is passive where you do it yourself. There is active where somebody does it for you and both are good. The next step to return to play is strength. We want to get all the strength back in the joint, whatever joint is injured. So if it's a knee, again, the knee injury, we want to make sure that the hamstrings the quads and the gastrocnemius and soleus muscles below the knee are strong because that's how you treat an injury. You treat it from the muscles that surround it, superior, which is above, and inferior, which is below. That's how you treat an injury. Someone might say, well, what about squats and hips? Yes, but that's as we get into more of the functional strength training. But the first goal is strengthen the direct muscles above and below each joint, plain and simple, right? So if it's an ankle, you're going to want to strengthen the calf muscles, gastrocnemius and soleus, 
and also the anterior tibialis and posterior tibialis because they're on the anterior side of the shin above the ankle. But you also want to strengthen the intrinsic muscles of the bottom of the foot as well. So we go above and below a joint to strengthen a joint. All right, so that is our next step. And we usually start with isolation exercises to do that. So in the case of a knee, it would be like hamstring curls and quad extensions and seated calf. In the case of a ankle, it would be, again, seated calf, maybe standing calf, anterior tibialis, and uh, towel scrunching with the toes, things like that. So you're getting below and above. So that's the next step is strengthening. And the two steps of strengthening is first isolation and then compound or multi-joint, which means that the joint can now move in a fluid manner of how it usually moves, right? Because we don't walk around doing a leg extension and leg curl all day. We're squatting, we're walking, we're running. So we go from isolation to compound movements. That's the next step. So that's step three, right? Rest, followed by range of motion, followed by strength. All right. The next step then moves into what we call functional activity. Functional activity means that we're actually doing things more functionally. So we're, <clears throat> excuse me, we're walking outside of the gym a little bit more and functional might be like running and jogging, things like that. Like let's say you're a tennis player. So you've strengthened your muscles, but you understand, hmm, so am I able to kind of run and sprint a little bit? I don't know yet. So that's where we work on the functional activity of whatever the sport is. So we say, all right, so I need to be able to run a little bit. I need to be able to walk, things like that. So that's functional. Now it gets a little bit like gray here because that's step four. We get into functional training and I'm working with a woman right now. She's an elite pickleball player. She played at a 5.5 level. She went to the U.S. Open. So she's really good. And she's nervous about getting back to the pickleball court, which I understand completely. And I handle that in the last step, which is the psychology of it. And I told her, I said, well, first we have to get strong. Then we have to get like functional movement. And in her case, uh, I believe she likes to like walk jog style. Okay. Not yet. I tell her, I say, you can walk, but you know, let's not throw in the jog part yet. Let's get the strength in the joints. Let's get the integrity of the joints stronger first. Let's make sure they can withstand the pressure. That's the step. How long does it take? I don't know. Like it's different for everybody, but that is the next step. We go from functional into sport specific training. So again, when we're looking at the model of the elite athlete, this is all done scripted for them. So then they would meet their strength and conditioning coach. Let's say they're a football player. They've gotten stronger. They've got their strength back because it, they looked at their old numbers. They've been running. They've been jogging, all that. So they feel pretty functionally good, meaning they feel pretty much themselves but they're not in football shape yet, right? You always hear that, oh, not in football shape. And you don't want to send somebody back out when they're not in their sport strength, right? So then the strength conditioning coach will work with them on the specificity of training, sport-specific skills. So they might take them out and do some shuttle runs. They'll do some lateral running with them. They'll have them jump through tires or do things that is not common in their everyday life, but it's common on the football field without playing football yet. So that's sport-specific conditioning. All right. Boom. Hear that thunder? So 
That's the next step. Now, and again, it's different for everybody. So let's take my pickleball player. So before I, you know, would release her, I'd say, all right, so let's do some ladder drills. You know, the ladder you put on the floor, you go in and out and hop through it. So I would do all that. And then I'd say, all right, so let's do some side shuffling because in pickleball, you got to be able to move laterally. So, you know, we would either do it on the gym floor or we'd go outside and we would start shuffling back and forth and say, all right, so sprint up about 10 yards, you know, touch the net here, back pedal, bum, 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 bum. So, you know, that would be sports specific stuff. And I say, all right, now hold your paddle and do it. Get as close as you can to the activity. Feel good doing this? Yes. Yeah, I feel good. Okay. So now we're pretty much physically ready to go. The final step to return to play though is the psychological component. When athletes get hurt, they're very afraid of getting hurt again. And, you know, I don't have to say this to people who have been athletes or injured, but it's not like they fear injury because it hurts. Although, you know, that sucks. Nobody likes to be in pain, but that that's not what they're thinking. The real fear is I'm not going to be able to do my sport anymore. That's the fear or I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. It has nothing to do with pain. I mean, athletes, for the most part, anyone's I've ever known, have an extremely high threshold for pain. Matter of fact, in some cases, maybe too high because they push through things that a good coach would say, hey, back off on, and they're not going to tell you when they're hurt. And I see that a lot. But that's that's where the fear comes from. They don't want to be grounded, so to say. They don't want to be sat down. They don't want to sit themselves down. They don't want to think I'll never be able to do this again. So there's a fear and I get it. But, you know, with these professional athletes, there's this huge push towards sports psychologists near the end of their recovery because it is so critical to get confident because, you know, there's there's the old bias towards looking for information we want to be true, you know, or don't want to be true, but we're afraid it's going to be true. So sometimes when people are really better and I know they're better, they'll say, Oh, I kind of feel this or, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, I, I felt good, but then, you know, I went to take this step. And so really what that is, is it's kind of like their brain messing with them a little bit, like because their brain is afraid. So it's kind of giving them this information that they're not ready and see, we want to get people out of that mindset because fear of the injury could actually bring about the injury, you know? So like I used to use this example with my students where I don't know if you've seen like the downhill mountain bike racer people where they literally go down like mountains at super high, crazy speeds. And the mountain, the mountain bike racers know like they have to get through a narrow gap of trees at the bottom and they can see it. So they know if they stare at that gap, they're going to get through it. But if they stare at the tree, they're going to hit the tree, right? So they, you know, they stay so focused on where they have to go, not where they don't want to go. And it's very important to get athletes to think that focus on the health and recovery, trust the system and say, I'm better. I'm mechanically strong. There's no reason why this should happen again. You know, things like, okay, that was a freak accident. What's the chance of that happening again? You have to remain very optimistic like that. And you can't be hyper vigilant on every little ache and pain you feel, or that is going to keep you from getting back to where you want to go. And a big part of injury comes from fear of injury. For example, a lot of people don't go to the gym because they're afraid they're going to get hurt. 
and then they get hurt because they have atrophy, atrophied muscles, which means weak joints, and none of that had to happen if they went to the gym. So it's kind of like the self-fulfilling prophecy. And I get it, and we can prevent that by simply not hiring unqualified trainers or gym professionals that are going to have us do dumb things that are outside of what we really need to be doing. You know, if you're trying to strengthen your entire body, why are you doing kettlebell swings? I mean, because you saw it on social media and it looks cool. I mean, you know, that's ridiculous. We shouldn't be doing things like that that aren't necessarily good for us. So that is in our control. We can simply hire the right professional to make sure that we're doing the right exercises. And I'm not trying to make it sound like it's this mysterious elite way to find it, because if you just find anybody qualified who's basically got a degree in health and fitness and then is certified through one of the four accredited agencies, they're not going to be having you do kettlebell swings, I promise you. They're going to be having you do a low back machine for your lower back, or they're going to have you do prone cobras on the floor for your lower back, or they're going to have you do Romanian deadlifts for your lower back. They're going to have you do something sensible for your lower back and hamstring. So that doesn't have to happen. All right. But back to the task at hand, we have to understand that once we've gone through this return to play status, we have to get our head right. We can't fear the injury. We'd be smart, right? We Whatever got us there before, if it wasn't a freak accident, we don't repeat it. And we make sure we do our proper warm-ups. We do all that good stuff, right? But then we have to go do it and we have to trust our body. All right. Speaking of trusting our body, I absolutely trust our second sponsor, Daytona Beach's only overhead door company. Zach and Jeff Hawk are the owners. I've known Jeff for 30 years. I've known his son now for almost five they both work out to me to stay strong and fit and healthy, and they are, and they have the absolute best garage door business in the whole area. And if you're looking for one, check them out at overheaddoordaytona.com or 386-226-3820. Get back to what you love to do, people. <laughs>